The reading today is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Our actual text we'll be preaching from this morning comes from verses 26 to 38, but the Magnificat will be our backdrop as well, her response, Mary's response. Um, What we are doing is we're having an Advent series, so for four Sundays we'll look at the angels uh, predicting, prophesying the coming of Christ. Last week, of course, Gabriel announced the coming of John the Baptist as the predecessor to Jesus. And this morning we're looking at the same angel Gabriel coming to Mary, Uh, in a very different location, announcing the coming of Christ. And we'll see quite a bit of difference. These two passages actually link together, but there's quite a bit of a difference in the the people uh, being visited and what was going on in the passage. So we'll we'll do that, um, and then we will, um, well, then we will move on from there. We will look at that passage. That's what we will do. Forgive me. Thank you, Marcia Carnes. Chapter 1. So we will look at verses 26 to 38 this morning. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it is almost, if not completely impossible, for us to fully grasp or even partially grasp 
the miracle of your birth, Jesus, and all that it means. That I pray this morning through your power of your spirit that we would open our eyes and see clearly what it means to be your children. In your name we pray. Amen. I've said this before, but I had a professor who said this statement, and it has stuck with me, and he asked this question, what is your philosophy of change? How do you think change occurs? When are you looking for change in your life? It's one of those questions that if you really think about, it's, it's like water to a fish. Everything about us is about change, but we don't see it that way, right? Changing of lifestyles, of goals and occupations, and significant others and friendships and hobbies, etc., etc., right? But we come to Advent. This is the time for change, right? Jesus is coming to change the world, yet the church, and I think most of us, if we're honest, are very bored. We come through Advent. We, we do our thing. We go through the steps, the motions. We have Christmas, and we move on like nothing really happened, like there is no change. My goal for my heart this season and for yours would be that we might see change. Some of you here are not Christians. Just statistically speaking, I don't have anyone in mind, right? The statistics are on my side. But some of you are Christians who are stuck in a rut. Some of you are walking with Christ and you walk closely with him. But all of us, this Advent season, need to grow closer with him. So my prayer is this morning, as we look at the life of Mary, is we will see this significant change that will impact us, that we will see that God has sent Jesus to change us, that we might become more of the new person he's created us to be. So, it's a big order for 25 minutes. You ready? Three points we're going to look at. We're going to just walk through the passage. Mary's qualification. Okay, we're going to look at who she is, the announcement that Gabriel makes, and then her response. So let's begin with her, her qualification, kind of what's going on when Gabriel shows up. He begins by saying, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent. Sixth month from what? You might think of the year, but a few, mom- uh, down the, a few moments later in the passage, he tells her in verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived, and this is the sixth month. So Gabriel is linking this announcement to what has just gone before with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, remember last week we talked about Zechariah, he's a priest. He's in the holy place. It's like the apex of his ministry. He goes in there to do his thing, and then Gabriel shows up and shocks him. And not only that, tells him, you're going to have the son, the forebearer of the Messiah. What he, most, what he was most shocked by was the fact that they were going to have a child anyway. That blew his mind. And he was speechless, literally. But Mary's quite different from Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth were married. right? They were blameless Mary's quite a bit different. When you look at her, the first thing Luke tells us is she's from Nazareth. Now, later in Jesus' ministry, he is actually scoffed at for being from Nazareth, right? Somebody actually says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So he's kind of from the armpit, right? A lot of you people come from towns you don't even want to mention. I'll say, where are you from? And you'll kind of name the nearest big town, right? No offense. We all have, you know, towns or things we're ashamed of. Mary was ashamed of her town. Everyone's wondering who I'm talking about. So She's ashamed of it, or at least she could be ashamed. We don't know how she actually feels about it. But she's of no, it's of no significance. Also, <clears throat> she is betrothed to a man named Joseph. And the word betrothed, they did it very differently than we do in our culture. 
<clears throat> there was almost an arrangement of sorts. It was like an engagement, but even more strict than an engagement. And a lot of people want to say that Mary was 17 or 18, but scholars are saying the betrothing process began at age 12 or 13. Now, does that mean she was 12 or 13? I don't know. But she was very young. She was a virgin, and she was of no consequence to the, in the culture's mindset. And that's really uh, who she was. So not glamorous, nothing really happening, not much going for her. Luther says God might well have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter, who was fair. He was the high priest. His daughter was most likely fair and rich, clad in gold, and this is Luther's quote, clad in gold, embroidered raiment, and attended to by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred the lowly maid from this little town. And that's really how the gospel works, isn't it? It's a juxtaposition. Zechariah and Elizabeth, priest, wife of a priest, uh, at least in Jerusalem at the time of the announcement. Here she is in the north in Nazareth, a no-name town, probably somewhat of a not a most exciting place. And you think about you and I, we, most of us are part of some sort of social media. She doesn't have the image we're trying to put out. Right? When you all are on Facebook, when I'm on Facebook, when we are, I'm actually someone who hates writing on Facebook. But when I look at Facebook, so I'm even worse, my wife tells me, because I want to look, but I don't want to post. Um, I see people in their glory. I never see anyone telling me they're depressed today. You know, It's always like, look at my vacation I just went on. Um, and then there was actually this hysterical, I don't know if it was even true, but some sort of a posting about Instagram photos. Did any of you see this? That showed what you saw on Instagram and what was really happening when you scaled back. Anyone? It would show like a really amazing, let's say, meal. You know, it's the perfect close-up of the best meal. But when you scaled back, there'd be like Twinkie wrappers and, you know, all the junk that went to make the meal. Or a perfect-looking new couch with pillows and then it would scale back and the rest of the apartment was in just disarray. Anyone see that? That is a picture. It doesn't matter if you saw it. You can imagine it. That's a picture of, I think, how we use and plan on being known by people. We use um, social media this way. We want people to know us. But Mary was really the reverse. For her, the close-up wasn't pretty. Right? That's the setting. But let's look at who she really is. And look In verse 28 the most amazing greeting you could get. She looks up, there's an angel. And the angel is Gabriel. And he says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. In verse 29. In verse 30, he, can, he says it sort of again. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The word for greeting is actually, the root is charis, which is grace. The verb favored one is, also has the same root. It's almost like grace. Grace. God has poured out grace upon you. You are known by God as the one who is lovely, right? But it's important, and Doug touched on this earlier, that we don't think it's because of something that made, was unique about Mary. It wasn't like God looked on earth and found this holy person. In fact, the language already exists in the book of Luke to call her blameless, and he doesn't. I'm not suggesting she's not walking with God. She, she is, no doubt a Jewish girl raised to fear the Lord, but that's not why God chose her. It wasn't her conduct, right? So God chooses her, and then he calls favor on her. Luther says this, O oh Mary, this is his translation, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. 
No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. And it is so shocking to her that verse 29, she says this. She was greatly troubled. She doesn't say it, but she's thinking that she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. When I was in seventh grade, I had a teacher because I was not the best of students, and I maybe made a joke. She said, Ryan, or she did something, and I just kind of looked past me like, who, me? And she, like, flipped out. I'll never forget. She apologized years later. Uh, I actually saw her at the Kappa house. I was like, Ryan, remember when I got really mad? Um, but Mary did the who, me, but only out of true humility. I mean, she's really saying, me? I'm the favored one? And so the question is, do you see this side of yourself, do you see yourself as favored? I mean, when, when Mary is the recipient of this grace, it seems like it's not looking backward, but it's looking forward. And that's how the grace of God works. It doesn't come in and say, you've done some good things, let me pour grace upon you. It comes in and says, this is who you are now. This is your future. Right? And her future had changed. Her Instagram, close up, still looked awful, it got even worse. Right? Pregnant, out of wedlock, etc. But when you scaled back with her Instagram, you're going to see the hosts of heaven shining down glory on her, seeing her as beautiful and blessed. Is that how you see God looking at you? Is that what you believe as we think about the Advent season that God looks at you? How do you think He feels about you? So what is this announcement then? Here's Gabriel saying, you're blessed, you're favored. Excuse me, not blessed, you're favored. Um, And then he says this, you're going to have a child. In verse 30, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God in 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now the word Jesus means he saves. He's the Lord of salvation. This is the very first hint in the New Testament of who this person will be. He will be the one that saves sinners. He brings salvation to the lost. He's reversing the order of our fallen creation. And then Gabriel goes on and says, he will be great. Again, it's very easy to read over that. Yeah, he was great. What is Gabriel saying? Whenever that in the Old Testament you had that terminology without qualification, meaning without limit, it always meant you had God. In Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. In other words, there's no end of his greatness. And so Gabriel is announcing to to Mary, not only will you be miraculously conceiving this child who's a son, but he will be a savior and he will be God. Right? He will be son of the most high, verse 32. And verse 35 says, the son of God. Very, very amazing news. The Most High was a favorite expression of King David. So she sees the connection there. And, and of course, in 2 Samuel, when David was chosen, or before he was chosen, but as he was being spoken of, it says, God says to Samuel, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And of course, Jesus never committed iniquity. But the iniquity of mankind was poured on him. And he he had the stripes to show for it. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
I want you to imagine you're in a room. The angel shows up and tells you this news. Be honest with yourself. Are you going to run out and tell people, I saw an angel? How many of us would that, would, is that what you would say? Because what Mary did, she didn't run out and say, I saw an angel. She ran out and said, the Messiah is coming. The one who is going to take away the sins of the world. Now, I have grown up hearing that kind of language all my life. And one of the hardest parts about being a preacher is when you, you know that people are hearing your words and they're going, boring, you know, Jesus saves, put it on a billboard. Do you think you need a Savior? Is there anybody in this room who has it together? Is there anybody in this room who can raise their hand and say, I don't need a Savior anymore? Every one of you, and myself included, woke up this morning as desperately needy for the blood of Christ as you've ever been. Whether you were saved this morning, right now, that would be amazing. Anyone just got saved, let me know later or now. That's up to you. Or if you were saved when you were five years old, like I heard earlier in a testimony, we need the blood of Christ now as much as we've ever needed. There is nothing righteous in us apart from that. Later, this child called the Son of God will be baptized and called the Son of God again by the Father, right? Later, at the transfiguration, they'll see that he's part of the Trinity, right? Later, he will, ascend, he will re- be resurrected, and then he will ascend. What you have in this very passage is God the Father, the announcement that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is on the scene, and that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is on the scene. You have the triune God coming close, making a change changing the world. And so let's look at Mary's response. Her life changed forever. She didn't have, you know, if she had scrapbooks and you were looking at her scrapbook, there's going to be, oh, that's before I became pregnant with Jesus. And, And that's after. Everything changed for her. Do you do that with scrapbooks? We all do that. We do that with everything. This is before I had my child or before I was married. And in the images... You might look the same. You might be wearing the same clothes, but you think of it that way. Is that how you consider your own salvation? Mary had objective things that changed. The first thing she did was she flees, meaning leaves, Nazareth, to go find her, her um, relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth, in Judea. In Judah. So that's, that's big, by the way, for a young girl to just up and go. She probably, I mean, maybe she told her parents. We don't know what happened. But for her to leave was a big deal, right? But not only that, we know that she was pregnant. Her, and next week, Shane is going to be preaching on Joseph. And the fact that Joseph thought about separating from her, divorcing her quietly, her whole life changed. I mean, a little girl in Nazareth who is betrothed already to a guy that's a carpenter has her whole future in view. It's clear, Right? It's not like our present age. We don't know where we're going to go to college, what we're going to do after college, all this stuff. But we still know this would change our life. But for her, this was life-shattering. It had the potential of just ruining her reputation and everything else. But for her, it became a place of, of growth, of change, of, of overshadowing of the Spirit. And so I want to talk about that change. How did it happen scientifically? We don't know, right? We don't know exactly how it happened, but we affirm and believe the virgin birth. But the Holy Spirit was present, 
uh, one author says the Holy Spirit, uh, that her pregnancy, excuse me, is an action of divine grace, not explainable by human methods of insemination, but in terms of the creative power of the Holy Spirit. So when, when Gabriel says he will overshadow you, that's not new language. You see that language in Genesis 1-2 where the Spirit overshadows the waters, right? Hovers. And in the tabernacle in Exodus 40. And the Holy Spirit makes atonement for our sin in Hebrews 9. And that Jesus sends His Holy Spirit in Acts 1 to the church to overshadow us, to tie us together, to make us in union with Christ. That is the object of change of Mary. That is the object of change of you and I. Are you a Christian? Do you have the Holy Spirit? That is a very, very important thing and a very difficult thing to understand. I want to I say that again. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And that means you have been made into a new creation. Right? Galatians 2.20, the old has gone, the new has come. I like to point that out as often as I can because I find in my own unbelief and in conversations with others that it's very tempting to think what we're doing here is a belief system or a religion. And that's not what Christianity teaches. Though it has both of those elements, of course, belief being central. But we are made completely new. We have the Spirit dwelling in us, bringing forth fruit. So the real question is, for all of us, if I do have the Holy Spirit, if I am made new, then where is that fruit? What's happened? What's caused it to get stuck? Why do I look in my images in the scrapbook just like I did before? The same clothing, the same looks on my face, Everything's the same. Why didn't I change? Doesn't the Bible promise that? One of my uh, favorite authors talks about this, and I want to now lead into the subject of change for Mary. Francis Schaeffer talks about, in his book, True Spirituality, which really was born out of a series of lectures. You can ask Mike Seaman all about that. I would say Abby, but she would tell you to talk to Mike. Um, there's others that could talk about Schaeffer much better than I can. But Francis Schaeffer was a, a Presbyterian theologian. He went to uh, Switzerland where he started Labrie. He struggled with unbelief. He got to a place where he questioned his salvation. As a minister, as a missionary, he basically said, if this is all true, why does the world look this way? More importantly, why does my denomination look this way? And most importantly, why do I look as if the images are the same? He had a coming... He just came to the end of himself, and he went through a long process of, of just going back to the very beginning. He said, I had to go all the way back to my atheism and start back over. Very amazing person. But what he found out was that he wasn't believing these truths that he always often claimed. He wasn't living out of these truths. And so the Holy Spirit began to open his eyes, and he began to teach this stuff, and it changed a lot of people. And I would highly recommend his books. Um, or his tapes, or Labrie. But what he says is that there's this part of being a Christian that he calls, he coined this term, active passivity. And his person of, in mind that he has when he talks about this is Mary. So what is active passivity? The two errors I think Christianity will make is one error will say, be active, just go do everything. The other error be, be become completely passive. You know, God's doing everything. I'm just completely passive in it. What he is saying is actually our activity is in our passivity. Right? 
We are people who hate pain. We are people who hate hurting. And so the passivity that, he, that we see in Mary and that we need to be distri- uh, demonstrating in our lives is actually painful. It sounds like it's really easy just to let go and, and God's going to take care of everything, which is not what we're talking about, but it's actually a coming to the end of yourself. I remember, I, I've used the illustration before, I'll just quickly do it again, but the, the, the rock climber, Aaron Rothstein, who gets stuck in the rocks, remember the story? And he cuts his limb off. And every one of us who's seen that movie or read the story or thought about it have thought, would I do that? And the answer is absolutely. You and I hate the idea of dying. That's why we don't repent. That's why we don't go to Jesus and say what Mary says. Let it be, let me be your, let me read it so I don't misquote it. And she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And for Schaefer, that is the mascot of active passivity. For us to look at God and say, let it be according to your word. It's so easy to read that and think, well, of course she said that. The angel showed up, didn't give her an option. Now she's impregnated. What else is she going to do? Well, I mean, let your imagination run wild, but we see that Jonah in the Old Testament does a lot of running. God says, you're going to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish, right? He's out, or he tries to go. We have that kind of mindset. But here's another possibility. She could have saw the idea like modern day, you know, money grabber. Hey, the most important person that ever lives about to come out of my womb, there's money in this. There's power. Why don't I just move into the Jerusalem area and raise this child, and when he begins to become famous, I get some benefit. I'm just making this up as I prepared this sermon. But that is actually what Schaefer says. Those were your two options. Uh, He didn't go that far. But, you know, she could have gone one way that was completely self-seeking or the other way, which is self-seeking but fearful. But instead she says passively, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so my question to you and to all of us and myself included is are you living that kind of life before the Father? Are you saying, let it be with me? Let it be to you. Excuse me, I keep doing this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. As you look at your life, are you opening up your life to him? Are you inviting him in? We talk about abiding with Christ all the time, and it's a very confusing topic, and a lot of debate goes on. But that is what sanctification is. That is what growth in Christ looks like. It looks like you and I going, I am sinful, in need of a Savior, I'm going to cling to Jesus and say, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Mary was not sinless. She was lowly. She was sinful, and she needed the Holy Spirit. And you and I are sinful, and we need the Spirit to move in our lives. And that looks like dying. You know what death feels like. You you don't have to go very far back in your own history to think of the last time you had a fight with somebody where it was easier to just cut the relationship off than to go say, I'm very sorry. Why? Why is it so hard to look at someone and go, I'm sorry? Because it feels like death, doesn't it? We hate to admit that. Wars are fought over the lack of the ability to do that. Yet that is the center of the Christian faith. Going to Jesus in repentance daily and saying, Jesus, I'm running from you. You take over finances, fantasy life, 
relationships. And pray particularly. Will you forgive me? Will you? I see I'm running from you here. I'm, I'm afraid of you here. I am the servant of the Lord. Can we say that to the Lord? If you are a new, if you are here today and you're not a believer, this is your first prayer. If you are sitting right here and you either actively know you're not a believer, you tell people you're not a Christian, or more than likely you're sitting here playing a game, would this be the day? Would this be the time to say, Jesus, come, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Will you come in, Holy Spirit? If you are a Christian who is calloused, thinking you've got to get your act together, improve a little bit, get rid of a certain few things before you do this, this morning is a perfect opportunity to say, Jesus, come. I have nothing to offer. Will you take over? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. If you are a seasoned Christian and you walk with Christ and you think you have it together and there's no heinous sin that you're hiding, will you confess your tendency toward unbelief and to relying on your reputation and say, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. All of us are in the same position. There's no one different. But all of us need the Savior every day, freshly.